Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Tuesday, January 31st, 2023, the 741st day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you'll be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't, or you simply don't want to continue listening to the podcast for free a couple days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms. And of course, rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And just a reminder, the You Sound Vaccinated shirts are out. People are loving them. People are buying them. So thank you. I'm glad you like them. You can find them at cancelcouture.com. Cancel, C-O-U-T-U-R-E.com. Now, you might remember a few months back, Joe Biden was 
doing an interview with 60 Minutes, and he declared that the pandemic was over. And of course, the pandemic has been over for a long time, if indeed we had a pandemic in the first place. And the truth is that we probably did not. If we hadn't known about COVID and hadn't had the TV telling us all the time that there was a very deadly pandemic and putting the counter on the screen with the case numbers and the hospitalizations and the deaths. And it was constantly growing all the time as we tested absolutely everyone, all the healthy people had to take this test to see if maybe they had COVID, even though they didn't know they had COVID. And so they used tests that didn't work and they created this big number of cases. And then once you have those cases, well, if any of those people die, surely they count as COVID deaths. So we have these cases and these deaths and there's a pandemic, except if you go outside your house and you do absolutely nothing different than you used to, if you just go outside your house and go about your life as normal, well, you wouldn't be affected by the pandemic. You wouldn't even know that a pandemic was happening without the cable news and without our culture enforcing it upon us all from all directions. That was the pandemic. It was largely a pandemic of the mind. Now, whether or not people were actually getting sick from something, fine, people were getting sick from something. But flu disappeared. So what were they getting sick from? That question is still unanswered. But let's just accept the mainstream explanation and say that it was this SARS-CoV-2 virus that was infecting everyone and then variants were changing and people were being affected in different ways. Well, as those variants changed, as we're told, those variants got weaker, less ability to actually kill people. And so people weren't dying and people weren't being hospitalized. And of course, the case numbers actually never did matter. We were told again and again that these case outbreaks would lead to all of these deaths a few weeks later, and it turned out that didn't happen. We were told that if we opened society back up and took away the mask mandates, well, all of these cases would happen, and then a few weeks later, all the deaths would happen. And that didn't happen. So much of what they described as the pandemic was obviously a fake story and fake to the extent that it was not representing reality. And sure, they had data that they largely created to convince people that all of this was very real. The things they were saying, they were all following the science. All of this was legitimate and important. And of course it wasn't. If you took a critical eye to any of it, it would have fallen apart pretty quickly. And then you would have said, well, if this isn't how they're describing it, what is it? And if this isn't how they're describing it, what exactly is it they're trying to do here? So Joe Biden said the pandemic was over. And a few weeks later, we got an article in The Atlantic that talked about a covid amnesty that two groups of people would agree to forgive one another in the aftermath of this pandemic, where it was clear that both of the sides were a little wrong here and there. And had been kind of mean to each other. And so we needed to fix all this. We needed to make it so that people weren't mean to each other anymore. The Atlantic writer proposed an amnesty. Let's just all say COVID is water under the bridge. 
Let's just forget about the whole thing. I'll forget about how you acted. You forget about how I acted and we'll just move along. But of course, the two groups that were being addressed in that amnesty article were the people who were totally insane about COVID and the people who were slightly less insane about COVID. So the two groups of people were both pretty insane about COVID and supported all of the failed mitigation strategies. Just some people supported those strategies less than others. And by the people who supported the strategies the most, those people who supported them less were called insensitive. They didn't care about whether or not COVID was going to kill somebody's grandmother. And they didn't care about those kids. They wanted the schools reopened. And that was going to be very, very dangerous for the kids. And of course, none of that was true. So the people who weren't as crazy about COVID, they were like, well, these crazy COVID people are being really mean to me, but I agree that they're just trying to save lives. We're all just trying to save lives here. So let's have an amnesty. But all those people that said the pandemic and the narrative surrounding the pandemic and all of the proposed mitigation strategies were from the beginning quite crazy. And part of an agenda that actually was designed to do something much greater, much bigger than simply saving lives from the very deadly pandemic. Well, they wanted to recreate society in a way that made it so no one would ever have to die again. That's how they sold it to us. And if we weren't on board with all of that, if we weren't going to repeat all the slogans about COVID and we weren't going to agree that all of those people those COVID super fans, the people who wanted absolutely all the restrictions all the time. Well, we were actually evil. And you see, the problem is we were stupid. We were too stupid to know that we were being evil. And that's what you get when you don't just trust the science and follow the science and do what you're told. At that point, you become a stupid person because it's really smart to trust the science because it's the science. So we were stupid. We were evil. We were conspiracy theorists. We were science deniers. We were vax deniers. We were QAnons. And of course, all of this was done to support our cult leader, Donald Trump. That's how it was. And so naturally, being the stupid and evil people, not the good people who were just trying to save everyone's lives from the virus that kills at a rate lower than an average flu. Well, we don't get offered amnesty from Atlantic writers, because everyone in the two groups described by the Atlantic writer was actually trying to save lives. Those were the smart people and the good people who knew that what society needed, what the community needed was the repetition of the slogans. They had to follow all the rules. They had to trust the science. That was the whole point. That's how you can know good people from bad people. So we don't get amnesty. We don't deserve amnesty because we were trying to kill everybody. And that's why we still need to be targeted and censored. And of course, we aren't actually offering amnesty to those groups of people described in that article, because in reality, what they were doing was actually evil. They were supporting the masking of children, knowing that it would inhibit their growth and their progress and their socialization, their ability to eventually lead normal lives. 
and all for a mask that everyone knew at the time didn't work. The entire history of science showed that those masks would not work. And then the trial run in the real world showed the same thing. Same with the lockdowns that they supported that destroyed lives of hundreds of millions of people around the world. These people still argue that that was a good idea. And then, of course, they wanted to mandate vaccines. They wanted to segregate populations based on their medical status, their vaccination status. They wanted the shots mandated for children, even though children were at zero risk of dying from covid and a pretty significant risk of being killed or maimed or sterilized from the covid shots. They weren't asking amnesty from us. We wouldn't have given it. They weren't offering amnesty to us and we wouldn't have accepted it. But the article was still an indication that something major was cracking in the COVID narrative. People were realizing that maybe they'd been pretty significantly wrong about a pretty significant number of things, and maybe they hadn't treated other people so well. And so what they wanted to do was reunify their group on that side. Hey, let's get everybody who really likes COVID together. And even if we don't agree about Uh, how much we can follow the science, we can at least agree that we were all doing the right thing at the right time for the right reasons. So let's unify again, because if we're not unified, well, the people who actually disagreed with us, the people who were actually right the whole time, well, they might not be that happy with us. And there's probably going to be safety in numbers. And so all of this has kind of been simmering out there in the world and the narratives continue to push in our direction. People are understanding on a pretty widespread basis now that the shots aren't safe and that they're not effective and that regardless, there was never any need for vaccines to counteract a disease that kills one in a thousand people. Nearly all of those people over 70 years old and with an average of four comorbidities, other causes of death. And of course, all of that is leaving aside the fact that the tests don't work. The numbers were inflated so medical facilities could get paid government money and that ultimately all or nearly all covid deaths are either data malpractice or medical malpractice. So while level after level, aspect after aspect of the COVID narrative has fallen apart over the last three years in the exact ways we always said it would, there are still people clinging to it and very few who come forward and actually say, we got all of this wrong. The ones who do are usually making the excuse that they were just trusting the experts. They were just following the science. And so it's somebody else's fault that they were wrong the whole time. You see, they were only operating with the information they were allowed to have by the regime. And they didn't think, oh, maybe there's other information out there worth reading, worth engaging with. Even in the midst of a massive censorship campaign, designed to make sure that people like them would never see dissenting information. 
Now, of course, they knew it was out there because people were telling them all the time. They just called all those people conspiracy theorists and went on believing whatever the regime told them they must believe. But at this point, even that's not working so well. The WHO yesterday said that the pandemic emergency would still continue. We are still in a global pandemic emergency. Can't you just feel it? It's just like March of 2020 right now. So that's the science globally. Now, the science in the United States is a little different because while the WHO admits that the COVID emergency worldwide could end in the coming months at some point, whenever the science says in the United States, Joe Biden, the fake president, has announced that the COVID emergency actually has a final day. It's going to be on May 11th, which is about three and a half months from now. So they know precisely that's going to be the day. May 10th, still COVID emergency. May 11th, no way. And naturally, they're doing this in response to the fact that Republicans are going to be investigating what happened with this whole COVID pandemic thing, and they're intending to vote to end the COVID emergency designation. And as you might imagine, the fake president, Joe Biden, has absolutely no idea what's happening. Now, I apologize for that being a bit difficult to hear. Joe Biden just said that the COVID emergency would end when the Supreme Court ends it. Well, what in the world does that mean? I thought it was ending May 11th. So we have the amnesty offer. We have politicians and bureaucrats trying to shift blame to other people so they can claim they're not responsible for anything that happened the entire time. And now we have this from Newsweek yesterday. The writer is a man named Kevin Bass, who is a seventh year medical student at a university in Texas. It's time for the scientific community to admit we were wrong about covid and it cost lives. As a medical student and researcher, I staunchly supported the efforts of the public health authorities when it came to COVID-19. I believe that the authorities responded to the largest public health crisis of our lives with compassion, diligence, and scientific expertise. I was with them when they called for lockdowns, vaccines, and boosters. I was wrong. We in the scientific community were wrong, and it cost lives. Now, this is one of those statements that seems largely well-intentioned, but he's still missing one of the most basic factors here, and that's that they were not responding to a public health crisis. They created a public health crisis, and every one of their responses actually made the crisis worse than it had to be. And any proper accounting of exactly what happened over the last three years has to include that understanding. Every bit of this was created by the public health community, including the virus that came from the lab. And again, I want to make clear that I am not 
100% in acceptance of the fact that that's even what happened. But we know beyond doubt that there wasn't some magical natural virus that came out of bats in China and ended up infecting the whole world. That's not what happened. This entire situation was created and planned and funded and organized and scripted by the quote unquote public health community. I can see now that the scientific community from the CDC to the WHO to the FDA and their representatives repeatedly overstated the evidence and misled the public about its own views and policies, including on natural versus artificial immunity, school closures and disease transmission, aerosol spread, mask mandates and vaccine effectiveness and safety, especially among the young. All of these were scientific mistakes at the time, not in hindsight. Amazingly, some of these obfuscations continue to the present day. And he is right about all of that. The mistakes were obvious at the time, which is why a big portion of the scientific community and anyone and everyone doing their own research knew that what we were being told was the science was wrong from the beginning. But perhaps more important than any individual error was how inherently flawed the overall approach of the scientific community was and continues to be. It was flawed in a way that undermined its efficacy and resulted in thousands, if not millions, of preventable deaths. What we did not properly appreciate is that preferences determine how scientific expertise is used and that our preferences might be, indeed our preferences were, very different from many of the people that we serve. We created policy based on our preferences, then justified it using data. And then we portrayed those opposing our efforts as misguided, ignorant, selfish, and evil. And he's right about all that. But to say that this was just a matter of preferences is an obfuscation in itself. These weren't simply preferences. These were parts of an agenda that was already planned out and scripted in advance. They were going to do these things regardless of what the data said. These weren't simply about preferences of scientists thinking, oh, better safe than sorry, or, hey, this is really complicated, but maybe this will save lives. If that's what actually happened and then policies were pushed to advance those goals, those policies would have been stopped when it became immediately clear that those goals were not being advanced by the policies. That's how proper science would have worked, even if those preferences were advanced initially. So it wasn't just that the preferences of the scientific community and the public health community won out based on their manipulations of the data and the way it was presented. It's that the agenda as scripted would be advanced at all costs. And the portrayal of those who opposed them as misguided, ignorant, selfish, and evil was itself part of that same agenda. None of it was justified by the data or anything else. We made science a team sport, and in doing so, we made it no longer science. It became us versus them, and they responded the only way anyone might expect them to, by resisting. 
We excluded important parts of the population from policy development and castigated critics, which meant that we deployed a monolithic response across an exceptionally diverse nation, forged a society more fractured than ever, and exacerbated longstanding health and economic disparities. That is all true. Well done. Our emotional responses and ingrained partisanship prevented us from seeing the full impact of our actions on the people we are supposed to serve. We systematically minimized the downsides of the interventions we imposed, imposed without the input, consent, and recognition of those forced to live with them. In doing so, we violated the autonomy of those who would be most negatively impacted by our policies, the poor, the working class, small business owners, blacks and Latinos, and children. What might be more accurate is to say that everyone who wasn't them and couldn't work from home and didn't like being told what to do and what to wear and what to say and how to act all the time was negatively affected by their policies that had no scientific backing and made no sense and were wrong at the time. These populations were overlooked because they were made invisible to us by their systematic exclusion from the dominant corporatized media machine that presumed omniscience. Indeed, that is correct. But it also happened due to the systematic censorship of anyone who dissented from the mainstream understanding of how things were. Most of us did not speak up in support of alternative views, and many of us tried to suppress them. When strong scientific voices like world-renowned Stanford professors John Ioannidis, Jay Bhattacharya, and Scott Atlas, or University of California San Francisco professors Vinay Prasad and Monica Gandhi sounded the alarm on behalf of vulnerable communities, they faced severe censure by relentless mobs of critics and detractors in the scientific community often not on the basis of fact, but solely on the basis of differences in scientific opinion. Again, that is not paying enough mind to the fact that the entire agenda was planned and scripted from the beginning. This is not a difference of scientific opinion. It is a set of people enforcing an agenda against another set of people doing actual science and talking about the trade-offs. When former President Trump pointed out the downsides of intervention, he was dismissed publicly as a buffoon. And when Dr. Anthony Fauci opposed Trump and became the hero of the public health community, we gave him our support to do and say what he wanted, even when he was wrong. And of course they did, because he directs all the funding for all of these universities so that all of these scientists can do their little experiments. And they have to be able to do their little experiments because if they can't do their little experiments, then they can't save the world all by themselves with their science. So no matter what, they have to guarantee that that funding keeps coming in so that they continue to have a job doing their little experiments. And one day they're totally going to save the world. That's why they went along with Anthony Fauci. And that is just more proof of how corrupted science as an institution has become. Trump was not remotely perfect, nor were the academic critics of consensus policy. But the scorn that we laid on them was a disaster for public trust in the pandemic response. Our approach alienated large segments of the population from what should have been a national collaborative project. 
But again, even this is a biased interpretation. It suggests that science has some natural state in the world as being indisputable. And once you accept that bias, then you do what our public health and public science community did and what everyone online continues to do, which is demand 100% unassailable proof that shows the default position of science as the authority is actually wrong when science as the authority cannot prove itself right. Dissenters were forced to participate in a game where all of the rules are stacked to allow the default position, the institutional scientific position to prevail no matter what, because we're not only forced to make our arguments in their style with their data, we are also supposed to simply allow them to decide when it just becomes a matter of opinion, because once you work your way to the bottom of one of these scientific issues, they still don't have to be convinced at that point. They can still say, well, yeah, maybe it's your way or maybe it's my way. But either way, what we need to do is this thing. And when you notice that process playing out again and again and again, you start to realize that they just want to do that thing no matter what. And it doesn't matter how much science or data you can provide to them. They're not going to change their position because it wasn't the science or the data informing their position in the first place. It was conformity to the agenda as it has already been designed and scripted. But back to the article. And we paid the price. The rage of those marginalized by the expert class exploded onto and dominated social media. Lacking the scientific lexicon to express their disagreement, many dissidents turned to conspiracy theories and a cottage industry of scientific contortionists to make their case against the expert class consensus that dominated the pandemic mainstream. Again, there was no expert class consensus. He is just defaulting to that view because Despite his ability to see that the science has failed spectacularly, he still believes that the science should remain the default when making these decisions. You don't need a scientific lexicon to know it's a bad idea to take an experimental medical technology gene therapy and inject it in yourself to fail to protect you from a disease that can't kill you. You don't need to be a scientist to figure that out at all. In fact, it's not even a scientific discussion. And if it was a scientific discussion, they still could not make it because they can't prove that the vaccine was safe or was effective or that COVID was ever a very deadly pandemic. Labeling this speech misinformation and blaming it on scientific illiteracy and ignorance the government conspired with big tech to aggressively suppress it, erasing the valid political concerns of the government's opponents. And again, that's kind of funny that he's noting how the speech was labeled misinformation or scientific illiteracy or ignorance right after he has said that the people who lacked the scientific lexicon turned to conspiracy theories and a cottage industry of scientific contortionists. That paragraph is self-refuting. 
And this despite the fact that pandemic policy was created by a razor thin sliver of American society who anointed themselves to preside over the working class, members of academia, government, medicine, journalism, tech and public health who are highly educated and privileged from the comfort of their privilege. This elite prizes paternalism as opposed to average Americans who laud self-reliance and whose daily lives routinely demand that they reckon with risk. That many of our leaders neglected to consider the lived experience of those across the class divide is unconscionable. And that is correct. This did largely happen along the class divide, but there were plenty of people in this country who were in the middle class, the middle upper class and the upper wealth class who dissented from all of this and all of them were derided in the exact same way. Because the problem with our class of elites is that they're not actually elites. They're just all of the people practicing elitism, which is a good description of the party of false decorum. That's actually what we're dealing with. It wasn't just the rich and the educated thrusting this stuff upon everybody. They had plenty of useful idiots supporting all of this up and down the economic ladder and the social ladder. The phenomenon that emerged was that people who represent none of the aspects you would commonly associate with being an elite or elitism, nonetheless took up the mantle of elitism for themselves and acted as though them repeating the science was the same as them being a scientist to the point where they would say, I'm right about this because this is what the science says. We're still in a place in society where these people actually believe they've been right the whole time. Incomprehensible to us due to this class divide, we severely judged lockdown critics as lazy, backwards, even evil. We dismissed as grifters those who represented their interests. We believed misinformation energized the ignorant, and we refused to accept that such people simply had a different, valid point of view. And this is a good recognition. This recognition needs to be repeated across our entire society and across the entire range of issues that people have been censored for discussing, most particularly election fraud. Let's go through this paragraph again. And rather than thinking about COVID and the science, let's just think about the election fraud narrative. Incomprehensible to us due to this class divide, we severely judged election deniers as lazy backwards, even evil. We dismiss as grifters those who represented their interests. We believed misinformation energized the ignorant and we refuse to accept that such people simply had a different, valid point of view. And it's not just different and valid. It was correct and well-founded and based on the science and the data and a proper understanding of trade-offs, a proper understanding of risk and reward. That's how the decisions were made. And the same thing applies to election fraud. It applies to a whole lot of things where the elites just pretend everyone else is ignorant, even though they don't know what they're talking about at all. And even though their entire agenda was planned and scripted in advance and everyone can see it, 
if they choose to. We crafted policy for the people without consulting them. If our public health officials had led with less hubris, the course of the pandemic in the United States might have had a very different outcome with far fewer lost lives. You could even say zero. Instead, we have witnessed a massive and ongoing loss of life in America due to distrust of vaccines in the healthcare system. Well, no, 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 no. No one lost their life due to distrust in the vaccines and the healthcare system. People are saving their lives through that distrust. A massive concentration in wealth by already wealthy elites. Well, yeah, that happened. That did happen. Whoops. A rise in suicides and gun violence, especially among the poor. Oh, yeah. And where does that happen most particularly? Ah, yeah, it's Democrat cities. A near doubling of the rate of depression and anxiety disorders, especially among the young. Oh, yeah. Wow. Masking children, locking down schools, locking down societies, creating unemployed parents, depressed parents, parents addicted to drugs and alcohol, parents who might be predisposed to violence, ending up in situations that are frustrating and uncomfortable with a family whose needs they cannot provide for, more likely to be angry, more likely to get upset easily. And all of a sudden, what do you have? Child abuse and domestic abuse skyrocketing. Why? As a result of the science and the mitigations. That's what they did. A catastrophic loss of educational attainment among already disadvantaged children. And among those most vulnerable, a massive loss of trust in healthcare, science, scientific authorities, and political leaders more broadly. All of that is a net positive, a massive net positive. No one should trust the healthcare community, the science, the scientific authorities, or their political leaders. What could be more obvious? Why we ever existed in a society where we thought we could trust people just based on their academic or job credentials is beyond me. And in this new world that's emerging, I would suggest that it becomes all of our responsibility to never treat supposed experts this way again. My motivation for writing this is simple. It's clear to me that for public trust to be restored in science, scientists should publicly discuss what went right and what went wrong during the pandemic and where we could have done better. Well, tell me first so that we can have the conversation you're talking about where the scientists can talk about what went right. Tell me one thing, one single thing, the science or the public health community got right the entire time. I'm not aware of one single thing they got right the entire time, down to the most basic stuff, like whether or not the test works. They know the test didn't work. They employed it anyway, and then they based all of the responses on that test. Or more accurately, they based all of the responses on their agenda and used a test they knew didn't work to support all of that agenda and give them public cover for why what they wanted to do already was necessary. It's okay to be wrong and admit where one was wrong and what one learned. That's a central part of the way science works. Yet I fear that many are too entrenched in groupthink 
and too afraid to publicly take responsibility to do this. Solving these problems in the long term requires a greater commitment to pluralism and tolerance in our institutions, including the inclusion of critical, if unpopular, voices. Intellectual elitism, credentialism, and classism must end. Restoring trust in public health and our democracy depends on it. Okay, sure, our democracy guy. Now, listen, that is a fairly decent article. If that was going to be your first attempt at starting the public conversation and breaking the ice, well, cheers to you, Kevin Bass. That could have been done in many worse ways, one of which I discussed earlier with the ridiculous Atlantic pandemic article where all of those people just decide en masse that they are forgiven by other people who can't actually offer them the forgiveness they should be seeking. And that is a problem that we see throughout society. People will not admit they're wrong and then actually try to make up for what they got so wrong. What we have is a society full of people who think that they can lock themselves in their little panic room and then come out when it's all over. They'll never have to say anything. No one's ever going to hold them to account because they were just trying their best the whole time. Except they weren't. People knew that what they were doing was wrong and they did it anyway because they liked how it made them feel. It made them feel powerful. It made them feel included. It made them feel smart. It made them feel like they were in control of the very deadly pandemic and they would surely be saved because they were doing all the right things that would help everybody. This goes way beyond people simply admitting they're wrong. People are going to start admitting they're wrong in attempts to cover their own asses. Like we talked about with Scott Adams a couple weeks ago. I'm still the smart guy. I got one of the most important questions in the world wrong while everyone told me I was wrong and while I attacked those people. But I'm still the smart one because now I admitted I was wrong about that one thing. Everybody's just got to move on and be mad at someone else. It's not me. I'm not the problem. But we're not even getting that far. Because the things that people were wrong about actually have stakes, including in their own lives. Now, I'm not talking about the people who spent the pandemic sitting at home watching Netflix, ordering Uber Eats and saying awful things online. But the people in the scientific community and in the medical community, the people who went along with all of this professionally and got paid to do it the entire time, probably paid more than they've ever been paid to do it. Well, no. Sorry, an apology just isn't nearly good enough, especially when that apology includes any aspect of we really were trying our best. No, you weren't. Now, staying with the COVID subject for just a little while longer, this is from Reuters today. Pfizer sees steep 2023 fall in COVID sales aims to bolster pipeline COVID sales. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that an incredible description of what's happening here? COVID sales, all of the products that go to COVID from Pfizer constitute COVID sales. Pfizer incorporated on Tuesday forecast a bigger than expected drop in sales of its COVID-19 vaccine and treatment for 2023, intensifying investor concerns over demands for the products as governments cut orders and work through inventories. 
Chief Executive Albert Borla said that 2023 should be a transition year for Pfizer's COVID products before potentially returning to growth in 2024. Oh, that's weird. Really? Are they planning another pandemic for next year because it's an election year? They wouldn't do that twice in a row, would they? Ah, well, he's probably not saying that. He's probably just saying people a year from now are probably going to want these same vaccines more because, you know, maybe all of the misinformation will stop. Pfizer's total annual sales crossed the $100 billion mark for the first time in 2022, driven by the more than $56 billion in sales of its COVID-19 vaccine and Paxlovid antiviral treatment. It expects total 2023 revenue of $67 billion to $71 billion. We are building on a significant capital position that we know how to deploy to create growth, Borla told analysts and investors on a conference call. We are building an R&D engine that is more productive than ever. The company launched five new products last year and hopes to introduce as many as 14 more over the next year and a half including a vaccine for RSV and an mRNA flu vaccine. Oh, the people just can't wait to get their hands on those. Pfizer shares were down slightly at $43.53. The stock had tumbled 15% this month through Monday's close. And skipping down just a bit, Bourla said the company expects to start selling its COVID vaccine, Comirnaty, through commercial channels in the United States in the second half of 2023, rather than selling the shots directly to the government. After that transition, the company hopes to roughly quadruple the U.S. price of the vaccine. Thank goodness that all they're doing is trying to save lives and trying to end the pandemic. I mean, right? That's what this all has been about, hasn't it? The pharma companies who have made this amazing product that is saving so many millions of lives around the world. That's all they ever wanted to do. Save lives and end the pandemic. Remember when we were told that taking the vaccine would end the pandemic? But here we are two years later and the COVID emergency is still alive. And then there's this note from the FDA yesterday. People are tired of getting vaccinated. While more than 80% of the U.S. population has had at least one COVID-19 shot, only 16% of those eligible for the latest boosters, so-called bivalent doses, updated to better match the more recent virus strains, have gotten one. So only 16% of eligible people have gotten the booster. Now, why is that? Why did they just stop trusting the science one day? Why did they just stop being afraid of COVID one day? Why don't they care any longer about killing someone's grandma? I mean, that's what you're doing if you're not getting your booster, isn't it? What do you want this pandemic to go on forever? 16%. That's what they have left. 16%. Are we really going to pretend that there is some contest here for the next election, that there was some contest for the 2022 midterms. People have figured out they've been lied to about really, really significant things like the fact that they've been told they have to poison themselves or lose their job. We're going to expect those people 
are going to go out and vote for the people who mandated them to do that? Well, no, no, they're not. And that 16%, are we supposed to imagine the 16% of people still getting boosters are Donald Trump supporters? Are we supposed to imagine that those 16% are people who are getting that shot because Donald Trump said they were good? Are we really going to pretend that? Because online, that's what people are pretending. That is the only good that could come out of Donald Trump renouncing the vaccines as people still want him to do for some reason they can't describe. That would be the only worthwhile reason that anyone could stake their claim on. And there's absolutely no one in the real world who that represents. No one is getting the vaccine because Donald Trump said it was good. And I would even say it's unlikely that anyone got the vaccine because Donald Trump said it was good. It certainly wasn't their prime motivation in doing it. Are we supposed to imagine that Donald Trump coming out against the vaccine is going to make this 16% of people any less likely to get the next booster shot? Well, no, there's no way anyone in the world could possibly believe that. So again, I asked the question that absolutely zero people in the entire world who are saying this can answer. What benefit would be achieved by Donald Trump renouncing the COVID vaccines? Anyone? Anyone out there? Can anyone answer this extremely simple question? If I wanted something to happen in my life, I would be able to describe why that thing happening would be good. Not even if it's like good long term, right? If I want ice cream, I could say, well, you know, I have a real craving for ice cream. And someone could say, well, you know, the ice cream's not that good for you, right? And I would say, yeah, I know, but I have a craving for it. And I really like it. And ice cream is one of those things that I think I can handle in moderation. So thank you very much for your input. I'm going to still have ice cream. If I was going to go out and buy a new car, I would have reasons why I needed a new car and why my car now just wasn't getting the job done. If I was going to invest in someone's business, well, I would have to say, I think that this investment is going to pay off at some point. I think this person has a really good idea. Let's go ahead with this. How are we in a place where we are demanding that President Trump, who knows infinitely more about all of this than we do, comes out and says something to make us feel better, even though we can't describe any other benefit besides our own emotional need. And we are not only supposed to take that position seriously, as if it is the most morally brilliant thing that's ever been said to us, we are supposed to abandon the one person who we know beyond doubt is actually fighting against the regime and replace him with someone else who had the very same position on the very same issue. It's actually shocking to me that any of these people are taken seriously anywhere. Now, changing subjects without a segue... Yesterday, Donald Trump filed a lawsuit against the famed American journalist Bob Woodward and his publishing company, Simon & Schuster, among others, for publishing audio recordings of Donald Trump as an audiobook and in other formats and then profiting from those recordings. 
Donald Trump sat down with Woodward at various points throughout 2020 and 2021, and he allowed these audio recordings for the specific purpose of Woodward being able to use these recordings in his process of writing his book. The recordings existed so that Woodward could transcribe them and use Trump's own words in the written book he would eventually publish. And there was an understanding, and it's laid out in the lawsuit, that the recordings would only be used in the process of writing the book. Donald Trump expressed this. Bob Woodward expressed it. The publisher certainly knew about it. But that's not what happened. They took these recordings and they published these recordings. But before they published them, they edited the recordings and cut out certain pieces of what Trump would say, thereby decontextualizing what they actually did publish. So what they have published is Trump's words and Woodward's words, their conversation, but occasionally taken out of order and out of context. They left out whole segments of what Trump was discussing. And so I went through the lawsuit last night and compiled a Twitter thread on the parts of the lawsuit I found interesting. And when I got to the end of the lawsuit, I thought, well, this is pretty boilerplate for something that Trump would put out. I mean, sure, the legal argument is there and the evidence is there. And Donald Trump is suing uh, Bob Woodward and Simon and Schuster for at least $49 million. And so the lawsuit stands on its own in that regard. But that's not all that's there. And so I was thinking about this and I was like, well, you know where we're probably going to find something interesting. It's in that section where Trump and his attorneys lay out what the actual transcription of the conversation is and the parts that are crossed out show which parts were deleted from the published recording. So let's take a look at that part. And remember that Bob Woodward is held up as one of the greatest journalists in American history. And that was all on the basis of his coverage of Watergate. Bob Woodward essentially repeated the narrative of our intelligence community and in the process helped to take down a duly elected American president. And I would argue that he was employed in the exact same way in regards to Donald Trump. Now, the man clearly has no integrity at all. And so what we see in this transcript should not be surprising. Now, I've posted the lawsuit and the thread about the lawsuit in the info stream on Telegram, t.me slash I'm your moderator. It's on Truth Social and Getter and obviously Twitter. And so if some of this is a bit hard to understand, you can go right to the transcript yourself and find it in any one of those places. But here's the transcript of the conversation between Trump and Woodward. And they're talking about the run up to the Ukraine impeachment, where there was a whistleblower report and then there was a fake transcript of Donald Trump's call to Ukraine. And the Ukraine impeachment hoax was based on all of this, quote unquote, evidence that had been created out of nothing, much as the Steele dossier was. Trump says the whistleblower report before you ever heard of a transcript. It was given to Congress. Woodward says it doesn't have any standard. Trump says it blew up and Woodward agrees. Yeah, it blew up. We were getting and all we had, it was going to be a disaster. 
And Woodward says, but it's not truth. Trump says it was a false report written by a guy whose lawyer is a scumbag. Okay, a real scumbag. Look at the background of these people. Woodward says, yeah. Trump says the whistleblower report was a fraud. Okay, it blew up. It was going to be a disaster. Schiff got up before the United States Congress and he gave a false statement on what I said. Woodward says, I totally understand that. I understand that. Trump says, if I didn't put it out, if I didn't put it out, and he's saying, if I didn't put it out, no one would have known. They would have just gone by what Schiff said and what this whistleblower said. Now, that conversation shows that Woodward understands what Trump is talking about. Trump knows what he's talking about, but you know who doesn't know what Trump's talking about? Most of the mainstream media and anyone who is locked in to the central narrative, to the mainstream media narrative. And because Woodward and his publisher know that none of their readers know these facts and that they don't want their readers to understand what really happened in the run up to the Ukraine impeachment hoax, all this stuff is crossed out. Here's what's crossed out from that. Okay, it blew up. It was going to be a disaster. Schiff got up before the United States Congress and he gave a false statement on what I said. Woodward left that out. That's what they clipped out of the audio recording. So it sounds like they're having a back and forth conversation, but they leave out the audio of the damning parts and just keep going along. So if you're the listener at home listening to this, you don't know what else Trump said. And this is a pattern we have seen again and again and again over the last seven and a half years. So they continue. Trump says. This very innocent conversation I had with the president of Ukraine, who then confirmed the conversation, saying there was no pressure put on a whistleblower. Woodward says, OK, you're willing to have this conversation and you know me well enough. I'm I really want to understand in a comprehensive. And Trump says, but you haven't even read the whistleblower. Woodward says, and let me share that they're talking kind of over each other. Trump says, but you haven't read the whistleblower report. Woodward says, no, 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 but that's not it's not. Trump says, you can't have this conversation. Woodward says, but it's not evidence. Trump says, do you understand what I'm saying? And Hogan Gidley is there with him as well. He says, of course, Woodward said, yeah, yeah, it's not. And they're having this conversation about the whistleblower report and whether Woodward's going to recognize the importance of it, even though he hasn't actually gone through it himself. He doesn't know what the reality here is. Or at least he's intentionally ignoring it as Trump is trying to explain it. And this whole section, again, is left out of the audio. And so we get back into the part that is available. Trump says, so I have an innocent conversation. Do us, the United States, a favor. And then I say our country. I don't say my campaign. I say our country. And then I say the attorney general of the United States. Okay. And by the way, if anybody looked at that horrible tape with Biden, you'd fully understand that. And he brought up the name Rudy Giuliani, by the way. He did. The president. And again, all of that is cut out. It seems like Trump is talking specifically about the videotape where Joe Biden is bragging about how he got the prosecutor fired because he was holding back USAID from Ukraine until that was done because that prosecutor was investigating Joe Biden and his son's dirty business deals in Ukraine. And again, Woodward leaves that out. He leaves out this section. And by the way, if anyone looked at that horrible tape 
with Biden, you'd fully understand that. And he brought up the name Rudy Giuliani, by the way. So all of that is kept hidden from the listeners to this audiobook that Bob Woodward and Simon and Schuster sold to the public, profited massively on, and intentionally distorted the meaning of Trump's words. And that's a scandal beyond the fact that they weren't supposed to include any of the audio recordings anyway and had no right to. Trump says, I didn't bring it up. Okay, ready. And that's left out. He says, if I didn't have that very accurate transcription, and now it's been proven to be accurate because even the lieutenant colonels agreed that it was accurate. Okay, so, you know, I don't know. I think it would have been a disaster. You were getting killed. Trump says, the only reason I, and by the way, I got approval from Ukraine before I did it because I was very, I said, geez, you know, it's a terrible thing to do, a terrible thing to do. So we called Ukraine. We said, do you mind if we release this conversation? And we got approval. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to release it. All of that is left out of the audio recording that was published. And then the rest of this particular part of the transcript is rather interesting. Woodward says, I'm going to tell you something from my experience. Trump says, go ahead. Woodward says, because you've been very, Trump says, you, nobody more experienced. Woodward says, you're willing to have this. As you know, in the Nixon case, I always said afterwards, Trump says, by the way, that's a much different case. Woodward says, yes, I'm the first to say that. Trump says, I mean, you know, this is peanuts compared to that. Woodward says, but as soon as the Watergate burglars were caught, if Richard Nixon had gone on television and said, you know, I'm the man at the top, I'm directly responsible for this. I'm sorry. I apologize. Trump says, yeah, Woodward says it would have gone away. You don't think so? Trump says, I would never have done it here. Woodward says, yeah. Trump says, yeah, Nixon should have done that. Woodward agrees he should have done that. Trump says, but I can't. I shouldn't have done that because I did nothing wrong. And of course, Trump's right. He did do nothing wrong. And that's what the actual transcript proves. And Donald Trump was pointing out through this excerpted conversation that he knew he had done nothing wrong that other people were lying about the situation. That's what he describes to Woodward and Woodward leaves that out. So the audience, the people buying this audio book would never hear these explanations. The explanations they also didn't hear from the mainstream media. They are making sure that that audience simply cannot access this information. And it's part of the process they've been engaged with for a very long time. Now, that is way beyond the pretty clear legal problem that Woodward and Simon and Schuster have in this lawsuit. Who knows how this will turn out? But this little transcript in itself should be a scandal, and it should be an illustration of just what the mainstream media and the publishing companies that support the mainstream media are prepared to do to keep real information away from a certain kind of of American citizen. They are literally twisting and decontextualizing a president's recorded conversation that they do not have the right to publish. They take that twisted and edited conversation and present it to their listeners as representative of the conversation they actually had. And remember, the entire point of this book is to make Trump look bad. 
and they couldn't get Trump to look bad enough on his own. So what did they do? They changed what Trump was saying to make him look even worse. And you might think about that old adage where it eventually gets really difficult to maintain a lie because you have to keep piling new lies on top of it. And you have to remember each and every one because ultimately what you're doing is protecting that baseline lie. That's what's happening here. They're creating new false narratives to preserve their older false narratives. Yet another blatant Trump takedown attempt. And I was thinking on Twitter last night, I saw a tweet from a guy named Michael Sanger talking about how COVID was actually a coup. And I agree with him on that. He's not a uh, Trump supporter by any means at this point, but he's right about that. And it brought to mind the fact that so many people understand that all of these coups were kind of happening just beneath the surface from the time that Trump came down the escalator until right now. And even apart from people's knowledge of the reality of all these incidents, they still judge Trump as if none of these things happened, which is very strange. So last night, I thought I would make a little list of the attempted coups and takedowns against President Trump. And these are the big ones. These are the ones that in themselves should have been a Watergate sized scandal if we had a responsible media. And here we go. Russiagate, fake media scandals, 2016 election manipulation, the setup of General Flynn, false sexual allegations, BLM Antifa, the 2018 election manipulation, Ukraine fake impeachment, COVID, the censorship of American citizens, 2020 election manipulation, the very violent insurrection, the fake J6 impeachment, the 2022 election manipulation. All of these should be national scandals. And they would be if we had a responsible media and we didn't have that censorship. And even with Trump out of office, these things all continue. And despite all of them and people's knowledge of all of them or most of them and the recognition that these really are active takedown attempts, crimes against our country, people still don't incorporate any of that into their understanding of who Donald Trump is, what he has done and what he will do. And so naturally to hold on to their position and their Trump hate, they will reframe all of these blatant coup and takedown attempts as something that's actually Trump's fault. That wouldn't have happened if it weren't for Trump being there. And so therefore, what we need to do is elect someone who these things won't happen to. Now, what would be the only reason why these things wouldn't happen. It's not like it's just Trump who they try to smear or who they steal elections from, but Trump's the one they go after the hardest. The regime's going to go after anyone who challenges them. So if you're trying to find someone who the regime won't challenge, who the regime won't attempt to take down through these various coup and takedown attempts, what you're really saying is that you want someone the regime is okay with. And that is, in essence, what these people are saying. So it should be no shock that virtually all of them deny election fraud. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president.
In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range.
It's hell!